Acts chapter 3. Man, I love the song we just sang. Um, it's, Chris, that was a, a, a fitting song, man, for after Thanksgiving. Man, I've, I appreciate your heart in leading us in that. I love that gratitude. Um, you know, I'm, sometimes, man, I just feel like every minute is valuable. Um, I just feel like there's a lot in our passage this morning that's going to rip us apart in all the good ways. Okay, and so I just, I pray for you already this morning. I prayed just a moment ago uh, just for sensitive hearts, okay? So, and, I, and I say that now because I'm about to do something really goofy, and I really hate that now. It's, 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 in, the, it's in the plan, so I have to do this. So go ahead, Craig, go ahead and roll it. So our church is now sponsored by Geico. <laughs> no, um, I love that commercial. And um, first of all, the dad, the reaction of the daughter whenever he's like, Goop, you know, and, and, get, and she just turns her walks away, that's me and my children right now. And, and I just look forward to the teenage years. Um, I also love her dance. He's like, man, I love that, dude. I wish I could move like that. Uh, I love that commercial. And look, this, this is true. It used to be that you really saw the funniest commercials at the Super Bowl, right? But now you can look everywhere and see companies that are attempting to use humor in that way. And the reason I open with that, and I know that's a bit of a whiplash, Geico and so many companies like that, they, they weave a message into the draw of comedy. That's why I can say to you on Geico's behalf, 15 minutes or more could, and you would say, Save you 15% or more on car insurance, right? Did you know that those words weren't even in what we just watched? And you knew it. Like, it wasn't, it, you knew that because they have used the draw of comedy to communicate a message, and you don't care one, one thing about the message, right? But you can't help it. You just know it because the draw has been so effective. And companies do this. You may not even care about the message and care only about the humor, but that doesn't change the fact that the method has been effective. By the way, Geico even ran an ad campaign once upon a time that the tagline at the end said, 15 minutes or more could, well, you know. That's how they said it. Well, you know, because we do, because that message has been so effectively communicated to us. The reason I say that is because Jesus never performed miracles for the sake of the miracle. He, he would bring this big draw, but it was never for the sake of the miracle itself. Miracles were not wasted for him. They were always part of a larger picture. You'd have this miracle. It would be a draw, sort of like Geico uses comedy, right? Jesus would use this big miracle to bring a draw, but always there was a message delivered right alongside of it. Jesus didn't waste his miracles. He would use the draw to then bring a message. And we saw last week that Peter performed a miracle. But Peter takes after his rabbi like any good disciple would. And when Peter performs a miracle of bringing a lame man who's never walked to suddenly being able to walk, what does he do? He doesn't waste the miracle. He takes it as an opportunity to preach and deliver a powerful message, and that is that God was and is doing a greater raising than the lame off the floor. He is raising the dead in sin from their graves to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the message, and there's a draw, but there's a powerful message that substantiates such a draw. 
But this is Peter we're talking about. Peter, who without God's spirit, just two months before this, hid from Jesus' murderers, but now, full of God's spirit, preaches those same people's guilt and calls them to repentance right in their faces. God changes people. He changes people. And when God's spirit moves on people, God changes people. And God wants to do a mighty work, not just in the apostles who walked with Jesus. He wants to do a work in you that you may walk with Jesus. We're going to see what kind of raising God offers, what he's given to you, and in light of that, what we're supposed to do with it. So let's look together at Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 11 through 26. I'm going to read it all kind of quickly, and then we'll come back and make some observations. Three main ones as we go, okay? We'll start in verse 11. He says, Luke writes, while he, this is the lame man who has just been given new uh, legs, the ability to walk. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, which means holiness, godliness, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by and, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 17 says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. <clears throat> But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, that's Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. There's a literary technique that Luke is using in our passage this morning, and it starts in verse 13 and it ends in verse 26, and it centers on the idea that Jesus is God's servant. It's a, it's a sort of a bracketing, or, or maybe a, a better term would be like bookending. In verse 13, I'm not going to read it real quick, but in verse 13, it talks about God glorifying his servant. It's another word for raising up his servant. And then verse 26, he says the same thing, God raised up his servant. There's a bookend there that we're meant to take a theme from. God glorified and raised up the Messiah from the dead. He's talking about in verses 13 and then verse 15. And then verse 26, he's saying God raised up or prepared, like raised Messiah for ministry and service. Now, the word servant is one that's very important this morning. The servant is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And they, these people that Peter is addressing, collecting, or addressing them as a collective, they just killed the one God sent to put sin to death. 
The background is that upon healing the man born lame, which is what we looked at last week, that Peter and John get the attention of many people. Many people in the temple start to draw their attention to them, which we see in verse 11. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. I got a couple of images that I want you to see to get some context here. Put up the, the, the large picture image. So this is sort of a, an artist rendering of the temple of their day. And when we talk about the temple, and we've talked about the temple a lot, right, in Acts now and also extensively in Hebrews. When you think of the temple, I don't want you to think about like a church campus. This is small compared to what you're looking at behind me, which is the temple grounds. There was one temple. It was this elevated space in the capital city of Jerusalem. It was like a, an epicenter of, of the worship of God's people, the Jews. And so in this picture, you see this massive structure, and all kinds of things were happening there centered around the fact that God's representation of his presence was among them at this place called the temple. This is where it was at the beautiful gate where Peter grabs this guy's hand who'd never walked before, lifts him up, and suddenly the dude can walk again, and he's walking and leaping and praising God, which we looked at last week. Go to that next image. This is going to be more of a, of a close picture. And again, this is just an, an artist rendering. But I want you to see how many people there are there. Like, there, there are people everywhere when Peter is going to preach this message. And this is under these columns that you saw around, sort of filling the perimeter of this area. These columns are a portico, like a porch, like an over-awning supported by columns. This is, was Solomon's portico. In other words, it was a place where rabbis would be teaching around, teaching God's word, and people would be gathering like flocks of people, crowds. It's in that context that Peter suddenly gives this guy new legs that they all knew had never walked before. And all these people around see that Peter has suddenly done this miracle and they flock like crazy to come and see what has happened over here. The miracle draws this crowd. And so Peter sees an opportunity and redirects their gaze from the miracle and certainly from himself to the miracle worker. So in light of that context, I want to look at three things this morning. That we are raised with a purpose, just like this man was, that Peter does a raising, God does a raising for three reasons. Number one, we are raised with a sense of ownership. We are raised with a sense of ownership. <clears throat> and I mean this in a couple of ways when I say raised with a sense of ownership. Peter gives ownership of this healing to Jesus. And so he says, the sense of ownership I want you to see is that we didn't do anything. Look to Jesus, the one who has made this happen. But also, he is calling his audience to take ownership of their own guilt, of their own sin. And we're going to see both these things. In verse 12, he says, when Peter saw it, that's all the people surrounding him, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own, notice that word, our own power or piety, again, which means godliness, we have made him walk. He's saying, you think that we did this? You think we're just such good guys and we're so powerful? It wasn't us, he's saying. He's deflecting that. And you can imagine why people immediately probably praising Peter and John. Peter deflects and uses the draw to communicate a message. By the way, later we're going to see in Acts, Paul performs a similar miracle. And the pagans suddenly start, like they're, they're about to call, make a sacrifice. Like they, they bring an animal over and they're about to make a sacrifice right there at his feet. And he's like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Stop it. Stop. Don't kill that thing. Like, God, I didn't do this. God did it. And so you saw like, an immediate reaction of wanting to praise the individual as opposed to the God who has made it happen. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, the God of Abraham. So he says, it wasn't us. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Notice the ownership there of the collective history, tradition. <clears throat> 
He glorified, another word for raised up, his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. It's his way of saying the Messiah, the Christ. You denied him. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. There's a lot to unpack here. A quick recap of Jesus' life and ministry. And I mean quick. Jesus had gained a lot of popularity because of things like what we're seeing in our passage this morning. And as a result of that, of his teaching and of his authority and of his healing, he gained a massive following very quickly. One of the things that he did that people didn't like was he healed on the Sabbath. He also kind of superseded the law and talked about fulfilling the law. He called himself the Son of God and saying things that would cause him to eventually be hailed as the Messiah at the triumphal entry. But that caused, this caused some conflict. Because the, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin and others, which is like a Jewish Supreme Court, they didn't like that. And they said, this guy is a blasphemer. You can't call yourself God's son. Equate yourself with God. He's a blasphemer. And so they arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane because of the betrayal of his friend Judas, supposed friend Judas. And so they take Jesus and give him a mock trial. It's a mock trial because their mind was already made up what they wanted to do with him. But they had limited authority to execute a criminal. Plus, they didn't want backlash for killing Jesus because the people considered Jesus to be a prophet or even the Messiah. And so the Sanhedrin's way to resolve that was, let's get Pilate to do it. Like, let's, let's get the Roman authorities to do it so that our hands are clean, which is ironic because that's exactly what Pilate would say whenever he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate was a Roman governor. He was sort of a, a plant from the Roman Empire to exercise authority because he, they didn't trust the Jews to govern themselves. And so Pilate, when he's brought this, this situation with this guy, Jesus, and all these accusations of blasphemy, he questioned Jesus. But honestly, he looked at Jesus and said, I don't really see any problems here. And so he wanted to release him. So instead, he's like, I'll just have him beaten and humiliated, hoping that that'll be enough to appease the Sanhedrin's jealousy and insatiable demands. And we know that it did not appease those demands. And so Pilate says, okay, you got this tradition at Passover, I'll release a criminal. And he's like, who do you want me to release? And he sort of, he, you know, Let's, let's make this thing happen. And it wasn't enough for them, right? What did they do? They demanded a different criminal. And this is what Peter is referring to. In Luke 23, 18 and 19, it says, <clears throat> But they all cried out together, Away with this man, release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Barabbas was a member of a radical group who used revolutionary force. They used violence to attempt to win their freedom from authority. I want you to hear that. Barabbas was someone who rebelled against his authority and even did so by the hands of violence and murder. What we have here is a neat contrast. You have the rebellious one against authority and the taker of life that is released and you have the servant of perfect submission to his authority, his Father in heaven, and the giver, the author of life. The author of life is put to death, and the one who takes life is released. Guys, in reality, this is the history of the human race, is it not? All the way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose the sin. They chose the offense that causes death over God, the author of life. And you see this illustration coming to fruition even in this moment. That people choose death. We naturally choose death. 
It says the author of life <clears throat> down there in verse 15. You killed the author of life. So he says, you, you took a murderer who takes life, and you killed the author of life who gives life. The word for author there in the ESV may be translated source in your Bible, maybe even prince if you're in the KJV or New King James. Uh, that word can be translated in a few different ways. But what it really means is it, it's someone who explores new territory, like a trailblazer, someone that sees that there is no way, and they go forward and they sort of create a way when there is no way, and they become then as a result a founding hero. Is that Jesus who creates a way when there is no way? There's only death, only death, only death, only sin, only destruction, and Jesus goes as our pioneer trailblazer who sees no way and says, I'm going to make a way when there is no way. That's the gospel. That's the story of what Jesus has done. In fact, the early church was known as people who followed the way. We'll see that later in the book of Acts as well. What Peter is saying is that in Jesus, God had come to reverse the curse of death in the garden, but you, Jews, took up a literal murderer and put God to death. And so crucial here that Peter is saying that following Jesus is very, very important, very important. Talking to Jews, talking to people with a history, a tradition rooted in the Old Testament, his whole point is following Jesus is not abandoning our tradition. It is truly continuing in our tradition. God was sending him. However, to reject Jesus is to abandon our God and our Messiah, our servant. And so what's happening here is that people that followed Jesus were being accused of leaving the faith. And Peter's saying, no, 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 you're leaving the faith. I'm telling you, we're continuing in it, and you're missing it. You're the one that are abandoning the faith. We aren't deniers, he's saying. You're deniers. We're not the ones who are departing. You're the ones who are departing. They cast their ballots for one that brings death. They condemn the one that brings life. And here's the thing. That's a pretty comp competitive message because you got two very conflicting ideas. And it's like, you got to be thinking as a bystander, who's right and who's wrong? These guys are talking about the message we believe for a long time. This guy's a newcomer, and he kind of sounds like a blasphemer. And it's in that context that Peter says, look at this guy who's never walked before. You see that? He says, I, I understand that this sounds crazy. I'm telling you, look at the sign. Look at, look at what has happened. Does that not authenticate what I'm saying is exactly true? This man's dead legs show signs of life. Who's the author of life, he's saying? Verse 16 is why he then follows with, and his name, Jesus' name, by faith in his name, he's saying, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of you all. We looked at this last week. Why does God heal? We talked about him healing for three reasons. God heals, he saves, to demonstrate his power and authority. God heals to prompt his praise. And God heals to reach his people. That's exactly what Peter is doing with this message. Guys, in Jesus, the broken find healing. Amen? In Jesus, the broken find healing. But only through taking ownership. And this is what Peter's trying to get them to do. Only through taking ownership. What Peter's trying to say is, you guys got to admit your guilt. You got to admit that you got a problem. Before you can have the solution, you got to admit that there is a problem. And Jesus taught this same message. That we naturally choose what leads to death over what leads to life. We naturally choose sin over the author of life. Peter wants them to admit their guilt. He also wants them to believe in the holy and righteous one who died and was raised that there is a way out, a way maker. He wants them to confess him as Savior and Lord who can restore 
new life. And he says, you see how this guy has been restored to perfect health? I'm telling you, Jesus can do that for you as well. We can take ownership of the offer of forgiveness and healing and life, but only when we take ownership of our guilt before a holy God. And that is a message that can still preach today. And that's number one, a sense of ownership. Number two is a commitment to repentance, restoration, and refreshing. And I know that's a a real wordy thing, but I really want you to see these three ideas as we look at these next few verses. A commitment to repentance, restoration, and refreshing. The same people that he's attempted to expose as guilty, and I love this, he now also offers the opportunity to turn and find grace. Isn't that what you want me to do every Sunday? The same guys, the same people, you guys, me, the same ones that have offended a holy God, that have a guilty, sin-stained problem, we also have a great, a beautiful solution named Jesus. Verses 17 through 19, he kind of hits on this. He says, and now, so in light of that, in light of your guilt, but in light of who Jesus is, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, rejecting Jesus, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer and, thus, and he thus fulfilled. He says, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, because of what God has done. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. I love this because he's saying, you're responsible for the death of Jesus, but God also is sovereign over this plan that has come to fruition. He's saying, you did. You have a sin problem, but also God is so much bigger than our problems. God is so much bigger even than your decision to kill the Son of God. He says that the prophets foretold. He says all the prophets foretold. He's simply saying, you go look at your Old Testament, you're going to see Jesus just woven throughout that whole bad boy, man. And this is true. But I'm going to mention one of them specifically. Jesus' favorite prophet, Jesus' favorite book, Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 4. By the way, when, when Isaiah met Jesus one day, do you think that he was like, I know, you're my favorite. You think, you think so? That was probably an awkward kind. Jesus loved preaching from Isaiah, and that's, that's, imagine writing a book so good Jesus loves to quote it. I'm just saying, pretty neat. All right, let's look at Isaiah 53, 4 and 6, 4 through 6, you'll see it on the screen behind me. This is foretold. It says, this is the Old Testament, way before Jesus became flesh. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He had not even done it yet, and yet you see this foretold. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Again, notice the foretelling here. Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice the foretelling there, that something's going to happen, he's saying. Peter is saying it has. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 continues. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Notice the sovereignty of God there. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Exactly what Peter has told them about their guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's exactly what we just read from this passage, the righteous one, the holy one, my righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. When I read that passage, you know what the first thing that came to my mind was? The song that we sing, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. This is what Peter's saying. He says, you are very guilty. 
You have done big sinful things. You have big sinful problems. And I'm here to tell you, God knew that they were coming. His mercy is more. Verses 19 through 21 then are a call to repentance and restoration. Reread verse 19 and we're gonna go through 21. He says, repent therefore. Like knowing that that's the guilt problem. Repent therefore. There's a way out. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He's talking about the second coming here. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There's a call to repentance and restoration. The word repent doesn't mean to apologize. It doesn't mean to simply confess sin. The word repent is rooted in the Greek word that means to acknowledge that your way is wrong and God's way is right. So acknowledge that your way is wrong and God's way is right. It's not just simply praying and apologizing or confessing. It is turning. It's a complete change in your view of the world. In order to be saved, we must accept that our sins are wrong and that God provides the way that we should live. It's a turn. It's a change. And Peter says, if they do this, if they acknowledge that their way has been wrong, that God's way is right, if they repent, he says, their sins will be blotted out. Now, it's easy to read that and just sort of see it as they'll be forgiven. But the words blotted out, they're tangible almost, right? You almost see something when you read the words blotted out. At that time, a lot of the writing was done on papyrus. And papyrus isn't exactly paper. It's, It's a different material. Papyrus sheets were made by taking the stalk of a type of seaweed and cutting the pith into strips and pressing those strips together. And so the material itself wouldn't absorb the ink. The ink would dry on the surface. Very important. It didn't absorb. Our paper absorbs ink. But papyrus, it just sort of dried on the surface. It would be more like not writing on paper, but like painting on paper. Does that make sense? It'd be more like painting than it would be writing. And so the reason I say that is that a damp cloth, if you had a damp cloth, someone's written on papyrus, you could simply go to that papyrus and just wipe the ink off. Literally, those marks can be blotted out with a simply damp cloth. And this is the illustration that Peter is using with this little vocabulary word. There's a difference between striking something through on a piece of paper, scribbling something out, on a piece of paper and deleting it, isn't there? There's a difference. You ever be writing a letter with your hand and you're like, I wish I could backspace. And you're like, but this nasty big blotch. It's like, I wish I could blot that out. And then you, maybe you OCD and you just start the whole letter over. When you're typing though, what happens? You don't have to put a big blotch on there. You can just delete it, right? So typing's easier <laughs> because writing, you make a mistake and there's a big nasty scribble mark on there. But the reality is, the difference between scribbling out and deletion is that you could say, well, I've scribbled it out. It's not there, but it really is. And there's still a mark of the fact that it is there. Deletion is removal. It is blotting something out. The reason I say that is that God doesn't just scribble out your sin where the mark has still been made and he forgives you, but we both know what's still on the page and you can see that big nasty mark. No, no, God blots out our sin. Can we thank him for that? God blots it out. He doesn't scribble it out where you're like, eh, but I still I can see the mark. It's, it's still, no, no. He deletes. He wipes it clean. Your standing before God is as if you never sinned at all if you're in Christ Jesus. That's blotted out. That's different than a scribble where it's like, yeah, but the mark is still there. Deletion. And who is that offer for? 
It is for those, he is saying, who truly repent. Notice repent. Not for those that are perfect. Not for those that live a perfect life. He's saying this is for those who simply hear and hear, decide they're going to stop living for this guy and start living for this guy. You're still going to mess up. You're still going to sin. But for those who truly turn and say, it's no longer my way, it's his way. And though I will fail, I'm living for another. That's repentance. Truly in your heart acknowledging that your way is wrong, God's way is right, that he is not just your savior, but he is your Lord. And there is a difference between those two things. One is receiving a savior. Other is giving and saying, Lord, I give you my life. Guys, the problem with that is taking him as savior, but not making him Lord, is a pandemic in the, in the church. It is a pandemic where we just treat Jesus as this chump who gives us this blessing of eternal life. And we say, yeah, but I'm not going to be one of those radical Christians. And we've relegated him to our weekends instead of our lives. Taking him as Savior but not making him Lord is like a husband saying to his wife about their wedding vows of commitment to one another, only one another, and saying, well, I just said that so you'd marry me. And yet that's the pandemic in the church. As we say, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And he says, okay, let's see it. And you say, I just said that so that you'd marry me, so that I could have you as Savior. Guys, that won't do. That won't do. Is that a healthy marriage? It wouldn't work in your marriage. The way that you parent is Jesus Lord. The way that you plan your weekends is Jesus Lord. The way that you speak is Jesus Lord. The way that you spend your money and spend your resources and time is Jesus Lord. Are you really committed to him? Or are you just married to him? He wants them to turn and live for him. And he says the result of that is refreshing. He says that, right, in uh, verse, where is it? Verse 20, he says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The word for refreshing there is uh, the word that would be used for a cooling off from a cool breeze or a drink of water. Be really hot, you feel that refreshing, and you're like, oh my word, I needed that, right? Or you're so thirsty and you drink that water and you think, man, I needed that. Water, doesn't water always just hit best whenever you're hot or you're dry mouth or you're sick? I always drink so much water when I'm sick because I just need to be cleaned out and my body is saying, give me refreshing. Guys, listen, the cool water of God's love hits best when you realize just how famished you are without him. The desperation of who we are apart from Christ simply enriches the refreshing of who we are in him. And Peter's calling them to that same response that he's calling us to. He's saying Christ is gonna return and with him he will bring the time of refreshing to those who have repented and believed. He says you missed him, but he's coming back and you can be prepared this time. And he wants from them a servant response, which is the third thing that I wanna leave you with this morning. We're raised with a servant response. <clears throat> this is what God wants from us, not just people who receive eternal life, but those who live for him with their life. 
Look at verses 22 through 26. I'm going to read the rest of these verses and make just a couple of, we don't have time to go through all of this, okay? So let's just look. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you. Notice the quote. Moses said, the Lord God, he's quoting here from Deuteronomy. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is saying, from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, again, Moses is saying, shall be destroyed from the people. Peter's comment about that is, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, so he's saying a lot of other prophets, also proclaim these days. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He's saying, this is the coming to fruition of all the things Moses said and Samuel said and all those other prophets. It's coming to fruition in the person and work of Jesus. He's saying, you guys knew that God promised a future blessing and a future prophet to call us out. This is not a secret, he's saying. A prophet is someone from God who God called to tell others his words. Jesus was a prophet. He's so much more than Moses was too. But Jesus knew that he was a prophet. In John 12, 49, it says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. That is the very definition of a prophet sent from God. <clears throat> Peter is alluding to Genesis 12, 3, when God told Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's happening here, really broad summary, is the blessing through Abraham and to all nations is that God would raise up a servant, the Christ, who would turn people from wickedness and death to surrender and eternal Life. In other words, and this is the grand argument of Peter's entire sermon here, his message, is that the New Testament gospel is thoroughly an Old Testament continuation. The New Testament gospel is thoroughly an Old Testament continuation. And what Peter is saying to these Jews in the temple is that Christianity and following Jesus is not an abandonment of our roots and our tradition. It is the fulfillment of what we have longed for, what the prophets proclaimed, and what God promised. In verse 23, I want to revisit it real quick. He says, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to Jesus, to that prophet, shall be destroyed from the people. Guys, you will not be destroyed for following Jesus. You will be destroyed for rejecting Jesus. He's saying to Jews, you think that I'm the blasphemer, that the punishment's on me for abandoning, quote, abandoning our history? I'm telling you that you will be destroyed if you are to abandon the God-man that has been sent from God. And guys, this would come at a cost for them. It would come at a cost for them. In their culture then, it would mean a lot of loss, a lot of shame, which was a really big deal. It would come at physical consequences. We know that many of the early church were martyred even. But guys, this comes at a cost for us too, although very differently. But I will say to you the same message that I think is woven into Peter's call to them, and that is that it is better to be embraced by God and rejected by man than to be embraced by man and rejected by God. It is better, and man, this is a cultural commentary, guys. It is better to be embraced by God and rejected by man than to be embraced by man and rejected by God. Do you see the relevancy of that in our culture today? This should hit us right between the eyes. That more and more as the days come and go, 
It's going to cost something to stand with Christ. And I'm telling you, the cost for not standing with him is far greater. It may mean loss of a friendship or people furrow their eyebrows at you. It may mean that you get dragged and called names, lose a relationship. It may mean that you have to be selective with a spouse or with the way that you raise your children differently than others raise your, or their children. It may mean the loss of the approval of the culture or parents or whomever. But again, I'll just reemphasize, earning the favor of man is never worth forfeiting the favor of God. Earning the favor of man is never worth forfeiting the favor of God. To be a servant, to be raised up by him, means three things that we've talked about. To be a servant is to be raised up from the grave. Will we receive him or reject him? Taking Peter's call to these guys, will you, church, receive him or reject him? Will we, too, be raised up by the author of life, or will we remain crippled by the power of the grave? It's a simple call. To be a servant is to be raised up not only longing for the grave, or, or rather being raised up from the grave, but longing for heaven. It's a way of saying repentance. My way is wrong. It's time to live for God's way. The refreshing is coming. And we need to beware of falling so much in love with this world that we don't long for the greater world to come. To be a servant is to be raised up to reach the nations, which is the thing that I want to end with now in verse 26. Verse 26 says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. He just got done saying that through Abraham's promise, that the nations would be blessed, okay? He says, God having raised up his servants, sent him to you first, Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. But it's almost as if there's an invisible line that comes right after that. And the invisible line is the rest of the story of this book and the history of the church for 2,000 years. And that is, he sent him to the Jews first, but God has been making waves for generations and generations and generations. And guys, that is that the gospel is going to the nations. And we, church, you as a Christ follower, are an instrument in the hands of God, of God's mission. It is not too late for you. Some of you are here today and maybe feel like it is. Some of you are here today with family, and it's Thanksgiving week, and you're here, and this is the last thing on your agenda before you hit the road and go back home. And you're really just here to make your parents happy <laughs> or to make family happy. But I'm telling you, there is a message far more important than anything that you will hear today. And that is what Peter's message is to this people. That God is ready to blot out your sin. Not scribble it to where there's still a mark there, but to delete it. And that a time of refreshing can be provided for you. If you will admit your guilt, believe in Christ, and commit your life to him. But also for those of us that have, there's a reminder for us in Christ that this is what you have. That your sins have been blotted out. You know, it reminds me of the sermon that we looked at a few weeks ago in Romans 8 that says, who is there to bring a charge against God's elect? Who is there? Who can bring an accusation when God has said you are innocent? And I think sometimes the cloud, and I mentioned this when we all came in this morning, there's just this cloud that sort of hovers over our heads at times. <clears throat> and that cloud can make you feel guilty it can make you feel unlovable. It can make you feel like everybody around you seems to have their lives together. But there's something wrong with you. And I'm here to tell you, 
if God has called you innocent in the name of Jesus Christ, who is there to bring a charge against God's people? I want you to be reminded that God has blotted out your sin as nasty as it may be. And for some of you, it gets pretty nasty, doesn't it? But God doesn't just offer to scribble it out. He offers to blot it out. And if Christ is yours and you are his, I want to tell you that there is grace and mercy and forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Your sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And we long for the day of refreshing that will come for those who are in Christ. He is raising up people, and the healing that God provides is far greater than new legs, but a new heart and triumph over the grave.